But uh, go ahead and if you would, please turn, pull out your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And my plan tonight is to kind of kick off Ecclesiastes. And if I have another opportunity to preach at some time in the future, wherever I leave off tonight, I'm going to just pick right back up there. Um, so that's, that's kind of the plan. What we're going to get to through is, uh, at least the plan is to get through 11 verses tonight. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And, uh, and I hope that we do have an opportunity to pick this up because I believe if Ecclesiastes is an excellent book that is very timely for, our, for us. All right. Picking up in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. And to the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this time that we get to spend together in your word, and we ask your blessings upon it that you would be glorified in us opening the word and that you, Lord, would, um, would find our hearts soft, that we may be changed by it, and that we may see in it not uh, senselessness, not vanity, not meaninglessness, but rather your meaning coming through, your goodness and your grace and your mercy, who you are shining through it, and that we may give you glory for it, just as you deserve. We ask you to help us, help the words that I speak tonight and the ways that they are heard by the ears of those here to be, to be um, right and true and proper so that uh, nothing will be twisted and so that your truth will come out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for the record, uh, Clark Comperry and I did not initially collaborate in regard to talking about Ecclesiastes. A few weeks back, he taught on it. Um, a survey of the book kind of went through and was, was kind enough to share his notes with me. And I hope that um, you were able to be there because some of the things that he went through, just kind of, uh, we're going to hit on again and that'll just reinforce it. But quite a bit else was, uh, was brought up by him that is excellent and, and wonderful and uh, very good to receive. And it's interesting, though, that he would bring it up because that kind of leads to the whole point for me wanting to actually study Ecclesiastes in a forum like this. Basically, when you kind of get down to it, when you look around you, there is a very um, important theme, one single theme that seems to pop up a lot in the news and in the editorials and conversations maybe that we're having with each other or conversations you have at work, conversations with your family in obviously Bible lessons, because Clark brought this up, and then also in sermons. I mean, Bill has preached on this. Daniel McGraw a few weeks ago preached on this. Um, if you listen to any other preachers, you might end up hearing this, because it's everywhere we look. And that one theme is basically the rapid descent of our culture into the proverbial trash heap. We can't look away from it because it's everywhere. You know, and so maybe what we've done is we've developed a morbid fascination with watching it. Um, and I hate that because it's not really good to necessarily watch something die. And yet it's happening around us. 
We see it everywhere we look. And what we end up seeing is this rapid embrace of unrighteousness and evil. And along with the culture, what also seems to be happening is that many Christians are doing the same thing. They're embracing the same things. We see it within churches. We see it within denominations. They're grabbing it. They're holding on tight to it. They're making it their own. There's this syncretistic tendency where they're trying to grab things from the the culture that they see and duct tape it onto their lives, onto their doctrine, hammer it there, glue it somehow. They want all these weird appendages that end up misshaping and misforming what is actually good and true. We see it. And simultaneously, somehow, in spite of the fact that these people are doing it, without even the shame to try and hide it anymore. We still see a lot of churches, a lot of Christian leaders, a lot of so-called preachers who won't call it out and instead want to pretend like it's not even happening. There's more and more denial of it. They pretend that everything is fine across Christendom, that everything is fine in their denominations, everything is fine in their churches, everything is fine in their families, everything is fine in their hearts. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. Oh, sure, it's, it's messed up out there. But in here, in here, yeah, everything's good. And you see, that's why we need Ecclesiastes so much. Because what it does is it throws a bunch of cold water on this this, uh, debauchery. It brings about a sobering wake-up call to us. Because not only does it teach that nothing matters but fearing God and keeping his commandments, it also teaches that there is nothing new under the sun. So that... Each lie which the world tells is merely a new packaging of things experienced, fought, and triumphed over by the church over the previous centuries. Our God is too powerful, too awesome, too mighty, too wise to be overcome or to be caught unawares by the schemes of Satan. And so what we can do amidst this degradation of the culture and the depravity of man, we can Hold fast to our faith that he will hold us. He will hold his church true in spite of the degradation that we see around us. He knows the depravity of the hearts of men and he knows the wayward drift of groups of people like churches. And he will hold us. And what he's also done is he's equipped us. He's given us Ecclesiastes. He's given us his word. And so what we do is we dig through it and we find the ways in which he has already addressed the problems that we see because there's nothing new under the sun. And then we double down on what he tells us to do. We double down on his truth, the truth which predates all the lies. You see, there's nothing new under the sun and all is striving after wind. There's a phrase we'll see a few times in this book. It occurs nine times in here, striving after the wind. Are you able to capture the wind? Are you able to hold it in your hand? Can you, can you harness its power just for yourself? No, as soon as you snatch your hand, you find nothing's there. That's what Solomon's getting at when he talks about a striving after the wind. And that's what our culture is doing. You see, the answer to many modern questions lie in what, this one, what one commentator calls the most contemporary book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes. Now, whether that's true or not is beside the point. Because what we find are answers to truly contemporary questions in this book. It fights secularism, this desire within our culture to remove God from every sphere. Or within the church, this desire to place God in a box and set him aside until it's Sunday or until it's Easter and then we take him out and we play with him. There's a desire to pretend that God's commands and instructions are mere guidelines and are therefore malleable and changeable. Oh yes, Ecclesiastes fights against secularism of that type. It fights against hedonism 
And we look out across our culture and we see that our culture is in the midst of a big party. That's all it is. They're constantly just feeding their desires. They're constantly trying to assuage their appetites, to satisfy the things that they want. Oh yes, their God, their God is their appetites. They go after things like money so as to gratify whatever it is that is their desire or to keep at bay for a moment their fears and anxieties. They go after power, oh, to command for just a moment. To be able to change things and perhaps be remembered after you're dead. They go after drugs and alcohol because maybe they've realized that this is all meaningless. And so they just want to deaden things. And so in this great bit of hedonism, they dull the senses. Or they go after sex and relationships. Making a god out of the body's form. Or tickling of the mind with relationships. Titillating the mind with, with relationships that never should happen. Yes, it fights against hedonism too. It fights against humanism. You know, to be a humanist used to just mean that one agreed to be to the inherent worth of man and the potential of man in his capacities, but it has become a worship of man to the extent that God is dethroned and set aside, while man's reason and his scientific ability are enthroned in God's place. Yes, it fights against humanism. It fights against uh, rationalism. The philosophy which bases everything on man's reason and senses are his only source of knowledge. So unless it can be seen or heard or tasted or touched or smelled, it's not real. And it fights also against skepticism. The philosophy which says that knowledge cannot even be known. And that everything we think we know must be questioned. So there's a lot here in Ecclesiastes that we're going to get to. But one question that is more teaching-oriented than preaching, I admit it, um, that we do need to address is who wrote Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to take a little bit of a a side route here for a moment. And the reason I bring this up, well, actually I should backtrack. I had initially written out several pages worth of notes on this very thing because every time you pick up a a concordance or a scholarly paper or um, an academic book on the subject, They're always questioning who wrote Ecclesiastes. So I want to address that here, especially for the purposes of continuing if if we're able uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. But I had initially written a very long section and threw it out. So I wrote a lesser section and threw that out because it's still too long. So what I'm going to try and do here is give you the Cliff's Notes version of the Cliff's Notes version of the Cliff's Notes version of of, uh, the, the whole point. Now, I'll start with saying that according to both Jewish and Christian tradition, uh, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon right around the end of his life. Jewish tradition in particular says that contrary to the narrative about his life being, uh, being found in 1 Kings, Solomon repented on his deathbed, and the book of Ecclesiastes was basically the warning that he gave to his son, and it was recorded then. Also, obviously, the internal testimony of the book is that it's... Uh, that the writer was the son of David, king in Jerusalem, right? We see that in chapter 1, verse 1. And, okay, we look at that and we go, okay, we know of about 20 sons of David from Scripture, but only one of them was the king in Jerusalem. So, yeah, we're pretty sure there was Solomon there. So, what are the reasons why some scholars do not think that Solomon wrote it? The first one is, why would Solomon use a pseudonym? You see this in uh, verses 1 and 2 of our our passage today. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. This word in in, uh, Hebrew is koaleth, koaleth. So that's what you'll see when you pick up a commentary or something. They often just refer to the author, not knowing who it was, if it's not Solomon. And they refer to him as koaleth. Why would Solomon use a pseudonym here? when he doesn't in Proverbs or in Song of Songs. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that there seem to be two different voices in the book. Um, really about the only way to partition this book up is to have two bookends and then the body in the middle. Okay, The bookends are chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. And then right there in the middle, 
Ecclesiastes 1.12 through Ecclesiastes 12.7 is a body, and there seem to be two different voices in the book. Um, now, whether or not that's actually Solomon who's writing the bookends and then somebody recording in the middle, we don't know, or vice versa, but there are a whole bunch of different theories. Suffice it to say, they believe there to be two voices. Third, the language includes many language choices which seem to some scholars, not all of them, even some of them who don't agree that Solomon wrote it, believe this, and they'll argue against it. But the language includes language word choices which seem to be later than the 10th century B.C., which was the time when Solomon lived and reigned. Um, with some even claiming that it's post-exilic and that it's as late as 225 B.C., which would be a long time before. A lot of those people who say it's that late also believe the fourth reason why it can't be Solomon is that some of the ideas seem to be Hellenic in their philosophy. So Greek philosophy is somehow getting in there. And they don't, they don't believe, okay, this, this couldn't have come unless it was written much later. Which is kind of funny because um, I look at it and I go, well, why couldn't the philosophy go the other way too? I, I don't know. And then finally... The, one of the reasons why is that the genre of Ecclesiastes doesn't fit a lot of the other biblical books. Instead, what it does is it seems to fit in an old Mesopotamian style of fictional autobiography. Um, an anonymous writer would basically claim the persona of a real and well-known person and then write a story of their life, which was both fictional and intended to teach a lesson. That's what they would do in this, and that definitely fits what, what we see in Ecclesiastes. But once again... I mean, it's, there, was, there was commerce between Israel and the rest of the Mesopotamian area. So ultimately, I, it seems as if scholars are just making things too difficult. And I'll just go with the earliest traditions and maintain that Solomon, as the author, um, wrote this somewhere around the time of his death or that it was at least uh, copied down somewhere near that time. Um, and I do this for a couple of reasons. And the first one is kind of a faith-based one. The book is a part of the canon and always has been. There have certainly been questions about whether it should be included or not, but it's always been left in. And one of the things that I think is very important for us to understand is that God can keep his own. I think we have to have faith about that, that he can preserve that which is his. And so this book, along with all the other books that we have in our canon, have been received it's not that uh, some, some uh, authority other than God has provided these to us. And so I want to extend that to Ecclesiastes here as well. And since Ecclesiastes is very clear, which is the second reason, by the way, that I believe this and I'm going forward with this, since it's clear and it makes, uh, then that's, uh, that's one of the reasons why we'll do this here. But then also what I want to point out is that it makes sense if it's Solomon who's telling the story. During Solomon's reign, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, they were all at their power nadir. They were not very, uh, not very powerful, and Solomon was able to expand his borders, take on control of a whole bunch of trade routes, which meant that A, he didn't have to worry about invasion, and B, he was collecting a lot of money, had a lot of wealth, had a lot of power at his disposal. And then I get the impression that the man was bored. He was bored with life. Can you imagine being the wisest person who ever lived and probably being more knowledgeable than just about everybody else in your time and then going to someone and basically looking for answers for the questions that you have? I mean, I get the impression the man was bored. He was constantly trying to figure things out. And so he had no one to teach him. And... I heard one preacher, when speaking on Ecclesiastes, ask this question, and I thought this was perfect, because this frames Ecclesiastes so well. Do you ever wonder at your constant attempt to outmaneuver boredom? The entire history of the world seems to be a huge struggle against pointlessness. And isn't that true? And you can almost see that in the life of Solomon, that he is bored, he sees the world as pointless. And then what does he do? He tries to find a point. And he fails spectacularly, doesn't he? 
an atheist writer named uh, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Uh, gave this quote, and I love this because this also helps frame Ecclesiastes perfectly. He said, Plato said that the unexamined life is not worth living. You've probably heard that that quote before, right? The unexamined life is not worth living, implying that if you examine it, you might find something to which you can hold on to and, and, uh, and examine. So back to Vonnegut. He said, Plato said that the unexamined life is not worth living. But what if the examined life turns out to be a clunker as well? And I've, I've wondered about that, too. How many people are out there taking the, the um, advice of Plato and other philosophers and they're examining their life and finding out that the examined life is a clunker as well? I think that's what you see in Solomon. He certainly wasn't going to leave his life unexamined. He's too wise and knowledgeable for that. No, he's going to examine it. And what he's going to find out is that amidst all of the sin and the horrible situation that man finds himself in, it's a big clunker. Apart from one thing. Apart from what we see at the end of the book. Because I'll give you a sneak peek. Ecclesiastes 12 verses 13 and 14 is the key. It's the key to understanding all the rest of the book. He even says it. When all has been said, the conclusion is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Or this applies to every person. Your versions may have something different there. Isn't that interesting? So how are we to understand the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, basically, the book defies all logical analysis. That's what one of the commentators said. And, but this does not mean that we adopt some philosophical skepticism about it. No, the knowledge is there. The important things to learn are there. Truth is there. We just need to be a little bit smarter about it. And the reason why it defies logical analysis is because the writer is basically stumbling over himself, his foolishness, his hopeless conclusions, as he tells his story, hoping that his son will not fall into the same traps that he did. Can you imagine in the throes of that, perhaps also haunted by the fact that you're going to die soon? You're on your deathbed, and you're trying to get something important across to your son. Don't you think there might be a little bit of logical inconsistency, or at least that it wouldn't follow a perfectly logical train of thought as you recounted what you had done trying to find meaning in your life? The writer cannot make sense of the world. How can we make sense of his book? Also, I think this is important for us to realize, we often approach Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, with 21st century Western culture eyes and assume that everything has to be laid out in an orderly and logically progressive way. But first of all, that's not how Eastern people tend to think. They're more topical than chronological. And secondly, it also discounts the very emotion that is a part of this whole book, which is very cerebral in its ways, but it has so much emotion to it. But then also what we need to realize, too, is that the answer to making sense of this book is the same answer which we bring to any other difficult passage, and that's to actually examine it by the rest of the Bible. And we find within the greater context of Scripture answers to these questions, and when we look once again at Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, we get the point anyway. Fear God and keep his commandments. So, with that rather long introduction, we'll go ahead and jump into the text. Ecclesiastes 1.1, we already talked about how this is Solomon. Whether it's truly Solomon as the writer sitting there at his desk writing it out for his son, or whether it's just his words being written down by a scribe. We have them in this form today, and it's a wonderful thing. And then in verse 2, 
He starts off with his point. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the first thing that we notice, obviously, is this word vanity, which comes up five times. It's pretty repetitive. It's almost as if he's trying to tell us something, right? He's saying, this is all vain. And how can all things be vain? The Hebrew word, hebel, is variously translated as vanity, meaningless, futility, breath, passing away, fleeting, or even idle, I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E, so that it, it gives you an idea of, you know, that man who took the, the wood, cut it up, cooked his meal over half of it, and then carved the other part into something that he's worshiping. Now, this word also means not only that, that that idolatry is vain, but also it shows us, it reveals to us just how everything is an idol without God, without a fear of God. This word is as close as one can possibly get to zero. It is nothing worthwhile. It is nothing that matters. And that's what Solomon's trying to tell us. He's making this statement at the beginning. And I often wonder how many people, maybe already prone to pessimism or sadness or depression, read these opening lines and they say, nope, I can't do that, I'm out, I'm out. And then they move on to something less demanding, books like Your Best Life Now or So Long Insecurity. They go to that instead because they can't bear to do this, to go through something that starts off with everything is meaningless, everything is futile. But we know from Scripture that we have to deal with 40 days of the thunder crashing and the lightning lighting up the sky and the water falling from the sky and the waves pounding against the side of the ark before it finally comes to rest and we're allowed to exit in order to see God's promise written in the sky. We know that you have to wander for 40 years in a hot, dusty desert, constantly thirsty, constantly having to rely upon something falling from heaven in order to feed you. Bored out of your skull, probably. But you have to do it for 40 years before you enter the promised land. We know that you have to take on the darkness and sadness and just horrible views of Golgotha on Friday in order to see the bright and wonderful glory of the garden on Sunday. So vanity is what life is. And the sooner we understand it, the sooner we can move on to the way God undoes it in spite of our pointless pointless position. And that's Solomon's point. He is laying the groundwork for you, his reader, to understand the uselessness of everything, whether you're a king like him or a pauper, whether you're a rock star or a pariah, whether you're a Mensa genius with 24 letters after your name or a kindergartner. It applies to you. And lest we misunderstand that it goes beyond just him. Look at verse 3. Notice that he opens it up further. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? The question is rhetorical, obviously. Obviously, there is no advantage. He's just stated that in verse 2. Solomon has already taken pains to make that clear with his one-sentence tirade that includes the word vanity five times. But he states it outright just to be sure you understand. You know, this applies to everybody. Because he says man. We're not talking about a man. We're not talking about men in general, excluding women. We're not talking about Jerry or Frank or Tyrone. We're talking about man, mankind. It applies to everyone unless you forget it or miss it there. He also uses the term under the sun. A phrase which occurs 30 times in the, New, in the Old Testament and only once outside of Ecclesiastes. 29 of those are in Ecclesiastes. Incidentally, the one that's 
used outside is in 2 Samuel 12, 12, when Nathan goes to David after he has sinned with Bathsheba, and he tells him that this, this, uh, your punishment will be seen before all Israel and all under the sun. And here we are today, 3,000 years later, we know about the sin. We know about his punishment, don't we? That's all-encompassing. And Solomon's point is just as all-encompassing, that it's vain for everybody, it's meaningless for everybody. Here are a few other examples of how it's used in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1, verse 14. Oh, by the way, we also see it in one nine, a second time within our one passage tonight. But in one fourteen, he says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Chapter 2, verse 22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? That sounds an awful lot like our verse 3, doesn't it? Chapter 4, verse 15, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. Slightly enigmatic statement, and hopefully we'll get to it one day, but you can see all living under the sun thronging to the side of the second lad. Chapter 9, verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. An evil in all that is done under the sun. All that is done. Have you noticed how many times this comes in in, uh, conjunction with the word all? This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That there is one fate. What is that one fate? Death. There's one fate for all men. Then we get to verse 4. And all of a sudden what we see is him, Solomon, driving home his point. As he makes a series of observations about revolutions, about cycles, cycles of things. First generations, then sunrises, then winds, then waters, then seeing, then hearing. And these revolutions are meant to show us, these cycles are meant to show us just how little we are needed. Just how meaningless we are. Verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The earth remaining forever sets the tone for the understanding of the rest of the cycles which Solomon describes. Because the earth remains beyond any impact of the cycles which he points out. And you'll notice that these generations that come and go thinking that they will have a lasting impact or a legacy... They just merely fade into obscurity. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He lives. And what we'll see too with these cycles is he lives. The people live. And they have no power over these cycles. They have no power to actually change them or to undo them. They just go and come and go and come and go and come. We don't see where it is that they're coming from or where they're going to. To drive this point home, Solomon goes on in verse 5. Also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Wow. So the sun, all it does is just rise and set. Hastens to where it is and does it again. Over and over and over again. We almost get the picture. In fact, if we take verse 8, all things are wearisome. He says that. All things are wearisome. We get the impression of the boredom of Solomon again. He's bored with the sunrises. He's born with the sunset. Bored with the sunsets. Ah, yeah, I've seen that sunrise before. Ah, I've seen those sunsets before. I don't need to go out and look at them. I don't need to do anything with them. And yeah, that's not what we actually see in the rest of Scripture. In fact, uh, I love Psalm 19. It's probably my favorite psalm. And in Psalm 19, verse 4, we're told that in the sky God has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. What an awesome word picture. 
a bridegroom coming forth from his chamber. How happy would that man be, right? All that he had hoped, all that he had um, waited upon had finally come. What a beautiful thing. And so he proceeds across the sky in all of his pomp and glory and happiness. That's the way that the the sun is normally viewed within Scripture. Psalm 65, verse 8 says, Those who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. The dawn and the sunset are shouting for joy, certainly. That's what we get from that passage. But also, everyone who sees them stands in awe of them. What a beautiful thing. That's what the sun does. As the dawn comes and we see the changing of the colors, what do we do? We cry out in awe to the God who made it. As the sun sets and we see the colors changing and everything fading down into a darkness, what do we do? We stand in awe of it. That is how we should view the sun instead of boredom. Psalm 113.3, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. We're told specifically from the rising and the setting to be praising God. That's what we're told. And ironically... I told you, Ecclesiastes is an enigmatic book. It's, it defies all examination and logic. Solomon even, um, he, he's inconsistent with himself. Because in Ecclesiastes 11, 7, Solomon says, The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Isn't that interesting? So what is he doing here? In chapter 1, verse uh, 5, what is he doing here with the sun rising and him being bored with it? The point is, not that the book is trying to make sense of things by themselves. No. His point is that nothing makes sense apart from God. With our natures, At one minute you might love something and at the next you might hate it. Uh, We we don't hold on to anything. We're transient. We're, We're constantly changing. It takes instead the anchoring presence of God to love something for what it is. Why? Because as Bill talked about this morning, because love comes from God. 1 John 4, 7, right? So it takes the anchoring presence of God in order to love something for what it is. Second, that things which are boring and seemingly not important to those out there, you know, to one who doesn't have God, suddenly become interesting to the one who loves him. Why? Because God cared enough to make them. Now, I'm not one of those guys who uh, goes out and tries to find books on uh, subjects like um, bugs, okay, insects. I don't go to the library, search out a book, try to find some some, uh, interesting facts on grasshoppers or on ants or anything like that. I don't think I've ever looked it up even on Wikipedia. But what was interesting is I was sitting somewhere just a, a couple of months ago, and a little Katie did, jumped up right onto my leg. And it sat there for a moment. A be- beautiful, brilliant, translucent green. To the point where you could see even through its body, see its organs moving. You could see how beautiful it was. How delicate it was. And how perfectly designed it was. And I was amazed by it. Why? Because the God I love cared enough to make it that way. We love because he first loved us. Yes. So there's a key here in making something that is meaningless to others all of a sudden meaningful. That it takes the anchoring presence of God to love something for what it is. 
And when you have God, all of a sudden you care about things that you never thought you'd care about before. Right? And that's not meaningless. That's beautiful. Verse 6. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. Verse 7. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. This cycle of wind and water makes one think about the seeming eternity of it. It's all been happening since God created the world. So for 6,000 years, it's just gone on and on and on. This water cycle, the swirling of the wind, it's always returning back to where it was. And yet it's blowing all over the earth. And it makes you even think, wow, the breath in my lungs and the water that's in my body, maybe it was with Christ on, on the cross or in the resurrection. What an awesome thought. This is continuation, and we are a part of it in some ways. It's constantly renewing us. But that's actually part of the point, I think. Because we see within Scripture how God uses water as an instrument of washing. Think about Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's an instrument of washing. Or think about how the wind and breath are used as a simile for the Spirit. John 3, 8, remember Jesus speaking to Nicodemus said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This wind, can you understand it? Can you trace it? Can you follow its courses? Do you know where each bit of water that you've drunk is now? I mean, we're talking about something that we can't even wrap our brains around, much less contain, much less stop. No, because the point that Solomon is making is that this cycle has nothing to do with us. We are so small and so meaningless in and of ourselves that we can't interrupt any of these cycles. We can't change them. We can't adjust them. We can't... um, we can't undo them, which is one of the reasons why I think this crazy eco-mentalism today is, is anti-Christian too. We keep on bigging ourselves up as humans as if we can actually make a, huge changes to this, this, uh, the perfect cycles which God has put in place. And um, you know, if that's actually how he sees fit to end the world, I guess we're probably all okay with that, right? He will keep it all himself but that's the point that once again we cannot interrupt these cycles and then he drives the point home in verse 8 all things are wearisome man is not able to tell it the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing and part of the thing that keeps on coming up as i'm expressing this i realize is that my there's an inadequacy in words and in concepts to actually explain these cycles That's why the tongue is not able to tell it. Man is not able to tell it. All things are wearisome. We try very hard, and yet it just wearies us. It tears us up. It sends us to the point where we're exhausted because we can't figure out what is the point. And somehow, too, our eyes keep on taking things in, and yet we're not full. Our ears keep taking things in, and yet we're not full. And those who don't have God, as they see and as they hear the things that go on around them, though they may actually, um, you know, they're having pursued entertainment their entire lives, and their appetites, trying to assuage their appetites for so long, they suddenly slip into a purgatory of their own making. And they find that everything is wearisome. Everything they hear, everything they see, everything is wearisome, and they can't express it. That's what this verse says. All things are wearisome, and man is not able to tell it. I see, and the ears see, hear. Neither one is satisfied or filled. And so, the same cycle in which they hate in the sun and the wind and the waters, they also hate in generations and in what they see and what they do. And instead of um, honoring their parents and grandparents or 
speaking to their families or foregoing, uh, or they end up foregoing children or getting married or murdering children as they sometimes do. That's what they do when they get bored. They get bored. And their eyes, having seen the wonder and beauty of the world, they fail to perceive anything of interest within them. And their ears, though hearing the intricate sounds of a brook or the gentle whistling of the wind through the pines, uh, they cannot be bothered to wonder what is behind it. And so they find it all meaningless. Picking up in verse 9. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. And so transitioning from these cycles to his main point in this opening song, it might be a poem, we don't know, it's in poetic style here in our books. But as he transitions, he says, these cycles have all been going on, and they'll keep on going on. Whether I'm here, Solomon, or whether you're here, us, or whether your kids are here, or whether your kids' kids, and oh, by the way, they're not going to remember what went before either, those who come after us. Now, I honestly believe that there is a horrible bias, which most people have today and never realize, much less acknowledge. It is the bias against the past. Our culture constantly tells us that what is new is always better. We have to keep on upgrading and buying the latest version and trying the latest fad. And by saying this or accepting it as truth, we implicitly are discounting the value of the things which have been used and known in the past. And this unconscious, or maybe conscious, I think a lot of people are conscious to this bias, this bias begins creeping into what we think about maybe a book written a few decades before or a few hundred years before, or an idea which was embraced before, or an attitude which was culturally widespread before. And granted... Granted, just like today, the culture and societies of the past were just as depraved as they are now. We know that. They sinned in whatever ways they could back in 1022, just like they do in 2022. But the bias comes in, in when we believe that we have no blind spots, that we have no blind spots. And that the elites of today have learned from the mistakes of the past and that they're not passing on to us bad information or doing anything that will hurt us like others in the past have done. No, they've learned. Oh, yeah. They certainly won't lead us into the same mistakes as before, they say, as inflation rises like it did in the 70s. But the phrase, there is nothing new under the sun, goes both ways. See, the truth of God, right? It's, It's a... It's like a two-edged sword, right? See, the sins of our fathers, they're still with us. And the virtues which we think we possess are nothing new. Or, even worse, the virtues which we think we possess are actually the sins of our fathers. And the virtues which they had before, we've thrown out as a sin. That's how it works, cutting both ways. There's nothing new under the sun, and this governs things. We know that it is impossible for God to lie, right? Titus 1-2. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? John 14-6. So that means that truth originates from God, and that means that it predates creation. That's old, folks. That's old. There's nothing new under the sun means that anything that comes out of this pulpit, anything which comes from us, ought to be old stuff, right? Yeah. We're not wanting something new. We're wanting what's true. And since Satan is the father of lies, John 8, 44, and 
lied to Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, 2 through 5. Yeah, the lies have been around a long time too. Therefore, we should not be surprised when a depravity is found to have existed 3,000 years ago, nor should we be surprised when the beauty of God's truth was understood better 3,000 years ago. But let us not be so biased as to believe that we won't be fooled by the lies of the past or that we are too sophisticated to learn from the truth which was marveled at in the past. See, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11, provides us with so much ammunition that the rest of the book probably might feel a little repetitive as a result. There's a lot here. But it will not be. It cannot be. We speak in generalities tonight, but in the future we speak about specificities, specific things that are meaningless. And yet it's all framed within something very important. You see, the other bookend of Ecclesiastes, which I've already mentioned, is where we have to go in order to understand the rest. Yeah, it seems like it's depressing as we go through it like this. All is meaningless. That's horrible. Oh, man, I don't want this to be meaningless. But it's not, because it has to be framed within Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Look there one more time. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is... Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. See, the refreshing part of this whole pitiful, mystifying, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short existence is not in satisfying an appetite or leaving a legacy or even in doing good acts of mercy. Now, the solution to finding satisfaction is fearing God and keeping his commandments. This is the conclusion to which we must return and re-return and re-return and re-return as we make our way through Ecclesiastes and as we make our way through this life. That's, that's where it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. How much more down to the brass tacks can you get than that? 